attention, attention all personnel. It's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly, and joining us this week in the VIP tent is Lieutenant Reverend Rob. Hi, Rob. Hey, Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You've got a great name. It's it's fun to say. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great fun. I love your show. I've enjoyed listening to it, and I'm happy to participate. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you very much. Of course, we're here to talk about Season 4, Episode 6, The Bus, which aired on October 17th, 1975. But of course, since this is your first appearance on the show, Rob, i got to ask you, how did you become a fan of MASH the series? Well, actually, my story is not that uh, unusual for many that I've heard from other people. I grew up watching reruns after school. I grew up in Southern California. So come home from school, turn on the TV, watch an episode of MASH. Uh, I was initially drawn just to the huge humor and the antics, being sort of young and watching it early. Uh, But of course, later appreciated the fullness of the show. Uh, My mother and I watched the final episode together when I was in high school. uh, So we have that connection. I've always been a big Klinger fan. Uh, He was always a source of great humor to me and and continues to be. Uh, But later on, I came to appreciate and love Father Mulcahy, uh, even more so when I became a chaplain at a hospital and later, and still am a police chaplain, in addition to being a church minister. Uh, and while I appreciate the rank you've given me to start, I also know that it's the grumpy who get promoted. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I figured I would give you the same uh, the same level that Father Mulcahy started the show with. Was Lieutenant. there you go? I figured, figured that was appropriate. So, well, I, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I'm sort of fascinated uh, by that as your background. I'm first of all, I apologize that you're talk. We're going to be talking about an episode that does not feature Father Mulcahy. <laughs> At all in the, the entire episode. I do apologize. But like as an adult now, and that's you've done that kind of work, what's your read on Father Mulcahy as a character, a character on the show, and as a character as a, a man of faith on a television series? Because that's still relatively it's still a relatively rare thing on broadcast television it is and mash handled it so well i mean initially in the early episodes they made him out to be a little bit a little bit of a clown Uh, they made fun of him but later on that character developed into such a deep and rich person a man of faith uh, but also a man of great respect and love for everybody Uh, i feel a great affinity for father mulcahy Again, as I said, even becoming a chaplain, uh, but also I got to meet him once at an AIDS walk. I think it was in the 90s. Wow. Had a nice uh, chance to chat briefly with William Christopher. And of course, he's just as gentle and kind a man in person as his character is. And, and Mash has always respected religion. I always found that even as a kid. Uh, growing up in the church to see that Mass had a respect for this. And Father Mulcahy had a respect for people who weren't believers. You know, he often referred to Hawkeye as that atheist um, (laughs) or that crazy agnostic. Crazy agnostic, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there's always love and respect for people. And he always showed sort of that gentleness and that willingness to serve. I mean, he's always in search of how do I become more useful? Uh, How do I become more productive? And so he's always seeming to find ways to reach out to other people and to care for them no matter who they are. And I think in some ways, you know, growing up and watching him has affected even my own ministry approach. Um, So I find him to be a great source of inspiration and information as well. I'm glad you said that uh, about your comment about that MASH respected uh, his religion. And, and I think it respected all religions to to a certain extent. And that's something I, I've always liked about the show. I mean, in the season three in the Life with Father episode where they do the bris on the, on the baby, I mean, they, they show you, an, you know, the extended sequence of what the bris is is like uh you know they really take a lot of time out of the show to to show you the whole process and then of course in season five uh the episode ping pong where they show the 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 buddhist wedding uh and they you know they again they don't they don't none of the characters are mocking it or 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 rolling their eyes it's it's taken very seriously in fact colonel potter is proud to be part of it and that's something i've always liked about mash i mean i i will admit i am i am not a person of faith but i appreciate that mash takes everybody seriously even frank burns in its own way it takes everybody seriously Mm -hmm. and it has compassion for all of its characters it's one of the reasons i like the show so much that's wonderful that you got to meet william christopher that's that's just marvelous yeah it was just a short 
short moment, but you know, for all of us MASH fans, those short moments are valuable in and of themselves. Yeah, that is really, that is really, really great. Now, so when you said you watched it in reruns, uh, did you, did you find yourself gravitating to a particular era of the show? I mean, any show that's on 11 seasons, you're going to have parts that you like a little more than some others, or was it, did they show them in order from what you can remember, or were they all over the place? Yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, and I think you've mentioned, and other people have mentioned on the show, how much I've enjoyed watching them lately on Hulu and seeing scenes that I've never seen before. I don't have the DVD set or anything. And one of those is in this episode that we'll talk about in a little bit okay. uh, with Colonel Potter. But yeah, when I got the DVDs, that has been a marvelous thing to see these new scenes. And and because I know the reruns so well, even these new scenes are still they still feel a little fresh sometimes. Because like, oh yeah, this isn't this is a scene I've only seen say a dozen times, as opposed right. to the rest of the episode right. that I've seen hundreds of times. So. Um, oh, well, you know what? I will probably, at some point, you'll have to come back to the show and we'll do a Father Mulcahy heavy episode. Sure. I, like I said, I, yeah. I really I'm apologize. This yeah. is one of the few oh, that Mulcahy's not in at all. This is it a really is. great episode. Um, as I said, it's uh, episode six, The Bus, aired October 17th, 1975, was written by John D. Hess and directed by Gene Reynolds. So on the way back from a medical conference, Hawkeye, BJ, Frank, Colonel Potter, and Radar get stranded, stranded in the Korean hills when their bus breaks down. When Radar can get the bus started after hitting a huge rock, Colonel Potter has everyone scout around to see if they can find anything familiar. No one does, so Potter orders everyone to stay on the bus for the night. With nothing to do, the doctors spend the time chatting, including telling stories about their first time. The mood darkens a bit when Hawkeye makes a careless comment about it being Radar's fault that they're lost. When it's Radar's turn to tell his story, he begs off, saying he has to go to the bathroom. He leaves the bus, and the doctors continue telling their stories. Even Frank, in between sneaking bites from a chocolate bar, he's hiding from the rest of the guys. It then dawns on them that Radar has been gone for far too long, and Hawkeye asks to go out looking for him. Potter refuses. When they hear a noise outside, they think it's Radar, but it turns out to be a wounded North Korean soldier, played by Soontek Oh, looking to give up. The doctors take care of the soldier, except for Frank, who insists he could be booby-trapped. While everyone gets some sleep, Frank stands guard, delivering a monologue to the soldier— who doesn't understand a word of English, so loony and self-deluded, it's frightening. Radar then returns, discovering that Frank has been eating chocolate on the sly. The rest of the doctors wake up, happy to have Radar back. He says that it's since he's the one who got them lost, he thought he should try finding a way home. Radar then says he never found any enemy soldiers in the area, so they're safe as long as they can just fix the bus. Luckily, the North Korean soldier is a mechanical whiz, and he fixes the bus for them. On the way home, they all mention how hungry they are. Radar hints about Frank's chocolate stash, which forces him to pretend he just found some chocolate bars in his duffel bag. He generously gives them all a candy bar apiece. All right. So, Rob, that is the bus. Um, this is a fun episode in that it's a, uh, it's a, it's a form busting episode. It's a bottle episode. Uh, and although it's a reverse bottle episode, usually bottle episodes is where they, you know, it takes place in just one set, usually one of the sets that the show has already got built. But here it's the, it's an episode that takes entirely away from the camp. We never see Margaret. We never see Klinger. We never see Father Mulcahy. Uh, and it's just the five of them on this bus. So it's again, it's, it's ambitious in that it's showing us a location that we've never seen before. But at the same time, it's a very limited episode because it's 90 percent of it just takes place on this bus. So uh, it's a it's a really sharp show. What do you what do you think of it? Well, one of the reasons I'm drawn to this episode is I like these episodes that happen away from camp because even technically they're different. They're interesting. I mean, Gene Reynolds direction is very interesting here because there's a lot of handheld camera inside the bus, which gives it a very claustrophobic feeling that they're very closed in and stuck where they are. So there's some just filmmaking techniques that come with when they're away from camp. It just looks different. It feels Mm -hmm. different. It is different. And they're not in their usual environment. And I should have mentioned earlier that uh, I've spent 16 years as a a church pastor, but for 15 years before that, I was in film and television growing up in Southern California. It's kind of the natural progression. Um, And so I did that for 15 years, mostly in post-production, in editing, for National Geographic specials, for public television. I was a producer on a children's series, a lot of uh, editing and uh, filmmaking. And so I'm always interested in these episodes that are away from camp because it, it gives them opportunities to do different things. I mean, Gene Reynolds even uses a crane shot on a couple of occasions uh, to give us this sense almost of them being watched 
uh, the camera's behind branches and then lowers down and then shows a view of the bus. So there's some technical aspects that make it interesting. It doesn't have a laugh track, which for right, me was right. unusual because, you know, I never saw the episodes without a laugh track. So this sort of stood out almost as if there's something serious that's going on here for the laugh track to just not be appropriate. I Wow, I didn't even notice the uh, things about the crane shots. That's really interesting. Uh, I never noticed all the times I've seen this episode. I've never noticed that before. But yeah, I mean, of course, you can't help but notice that, yeah, there is no laugh track uh, on this episode, which is sort of funny, because when you think about, I guess the idea is, you know, you're, you're reminding, you know, if you hear laughter over this, you're, you're like, well, where are these people laughing? Who's laughing? Uh, when we're in the bus at the same time, you're like, well, you could ask that question on any normal episode of Nash. Where are these people coming from that are laughing? And there's just something about we just accept it that there's a laugh track when they're in the camp, even though it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And I guess trying to do it on a but on this episode would be even more of a, of a weird conceit. And I know we know that the network constantly wanted them to do a laugh track. I'm guessing by season four, Nash had a little more leeway creatively to get away with that. And so I guess I'm sure Gene Reynolds or Larry Gilbert said, we're not going to have a laugh track. It would be even odder. And yeah, you're right. It does. It would rob the episode uh, a little bit of its eeriness. If you hear people chuckling yeah. at all these different lines, because yeah, there is. So, I mean, you know, these people, th- these are, there are four doctors plus radar. They are in a war zone. They are not, I mean, yes, they're presumably behind, they're behind, they're not behind enemy lines. They're sort of in front of enemy lines, but it's still very dangerous. Uh, it's not like you know, you're just perfectly safe. By the way, uh, the, the one thing they do not mention is how can you possibly run the 477 without any doctors? Right. I mean, how are you? They, they explained it that they were all at a medical conference. What kind of medical conference was so important that all four doctors would have to attend at the same time? I mean, I know you could, again, you could come up with the seat that they were told, oh, the fighting shifted and there won't be any wounded coming for the next you know, X number of days. So it'll be fine. But of course people still get hurt. People still wander into the camp with ax wounds and different things. So you do need a doctor. You can't rely on Margaret to do everything. So that part doesn't make any sense, but they, you know, of course you wanted to have all four doctors together. I mean, they, they hint at times in the episode that there are different surgical teams. And certainly we know that that was the case in real mesh units yes. where there's, there were more than one surgical team. Um, we get hints of it in the show, but then we never see one. They're just the only no. surgeons we have. So, yeah, right, it's, right. It's, a, it's a bit absurd. <laughs> um, but it's funny that this episode is really such an interesting mix of very serious undertones. I mean, there are things that Colonel Potter says in this episode that mm-hmm. really grab you. Yep. And then it's combined with this absurdity of Frank and the walkie-talkie and other things that are just so ridiculous. Um, but it's this fascinating mix of serious undertones and some real absurdity i think some of that might even come from the writer i mean let john david hess deserve some attention here i mean i think he'd written three mash episodes this is his second of three mashes and this is a man who served in combat uh he knows as a writer how to masterfully mix deeply serious with some humor um and i looked um up his information and interestingly he graduated from dartmouth with distinction, wrote for radio, joined the Army in 1942. He trained as a tank officer in the 743rd Armored Battalion. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge and many other major engagements. So this wow. was someone who'd seen some real battles. Uh, and apparently after the fall of Germany, he did a lot of assisting of concentration camp victims and refugees. So this was someone who'd seen a lot of life and knew how to write about the deeply serious mixed with some of the humor and the absurdity, which really makes this episode work. Wow. I didn't know that. I've, we went over his credits in the first episode that he wrote, but I didn't know any of that about his backstory. That's uh, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah. You know, the, so the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Hess has seen a lot of... A lot of heavy stuff. Uh, so, Well, and it I, does make us wonder if if some of the things that Potter talks about or the references to, to real battles, if some of that comes from his own experience. I mean, he mm-hmm. must have seen a lot um, that he's brought into this episode. Yeah, absolutely. It opens up with uh, the explanation, again, that they were at the medical conference and Frank chastises Hawkeye for being disgusting. And, he, you know, it talks... And, uh, you know, Hawkeye, of course, is teasing Frank about the behavior. And I, I kind of like the distinction where BJ asks Frank, 
what about me, Frank? And Frank's like, you weren't so bad. And BJ's like, I was trying to be disgusting too, which I enjoy. I like that he's trying to sort of, I mean, I think he's, I think he's kidding around, but I like the idea that he's trying to keep up with Hawkeye or in the very least be as gross to Frank as Hawkeye is. But BJ just inherently is a more gentle figure. So he's just not going to be as uh, disreputable uh, <laughs> in terms of his behavior as, as Hawkeye's. And it's sort of funny that uh, Hawkeye apparently was pulling some crazy stuff under the nose of Colonel Potter, which you, yeah. you know, that seems like something that he could get away with with Henry. But I guess, again, and we're hearing it from Frank's perspective, so who knows whether how much of that's really accurate or not. Yeah, that's what's interesting about this season of episodes is we're still getting to know BJ. We don't know all that much about him. He's still building a relationship with Hawkeye. And we don't know that much about Colonel Potter, too, which, again, makes this episode, I think, particularly important because we learned some important things about his backstory. But you can see that there's this real affinity and relationship developing here between BJ and Hawkeye. And I think even in that brief line that BJ delivers, you can sort of see this connection that's building between them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so they get off the bus, they, they hit the uh, the big rock, and the bus breaks down, and uh, they get off the bus. And uh, Frank is, of course, no help. He licks his finger to figure out where the wind is blowing. The breeze is coming from that direction. And Potter's like, great, and all you have to do is trade the bus for an airplane. And I I never feel sorry for Frank because he's he's a jerk, and he, and he goes out of his way to be a jerk when he doesn't have to be. At the same time, I always... I always feel a little uncomfortable when I see Colonel Potter make fun of Burns. I always feel like Potter should be a little bit above that, I guess. I mean, I'm sure he's just sick of dealing with Burns already at this point and he can't help himself, but I always, it always feels a little like, ah, it's okay if it comes from Hawkeye and, and BJ or somebody else or somebody under Frank, like, you know, Klinger or Radar, but Potter making fun of it, it feels just like i'm just a touch inappropriate i mean am i over think i'm overthinking this well i think it's I, no i don't think you're over overstating it but i think there's also this this undertone perhaps i mean obviously frank wanted to be in charge yeah and he thought he was <laughs> going to be in charge and then the rugs pulled out from under him and here comes potter potter has to be able to pick up that that Frank doesn't like him, doesn't think he's much of a leader, thinks he should be in charge. And Frank even says this in a brief aside conversation with BJ. That's right. About if I was in charge, this is what we'd do. I think Potter knows all of that. And so I think he's got to sort of uh, put Frank in his place now and then, <laughs> just knowing that Frank always thinks he should be the leader and he could do a better job. <laughs> it's true. That's very true. So uh, Potter decides, okay, we're going to split up. We're all each going to go a hundred yards. That actually it's right at that point. We get one of those crane shots you're talking about uh, where we see this camera sweep come in as we watch uh, Frank and radar head up. There's a funny line where Frank's like a hundred yards in these woods. And, and uh, Potter says, Oh, we'll take one of the enlisted men with you. Well, of course there's only one enlisted man to right, take. Right. So that's radar, uh, a classic comedy team. Cause of course they do not want to be radar. Doesn't want to, want to be anywhere near Frank, but then they go wandering out and Burns is Burns gets behind radar and pulls out his gun. Uh, yeah. because of course that's going to help. And he says, they love to pick off officers with the cream of our generation. I'm like, Oh Lord. Oh my. Uh, so, uh, and then, and then there's a weird, there's like a weird little piece of editing and it's, it's, I, I, I've never been able to quite understand why it was put together this way, where Frank tells Radar, move out, you know, like you march in front of me and I'll re be right behind you. And then we see that Frank isn't, he's just standing still. And then, then we have another shot of Frank walking where he goes, O'Reilly. And it seems that Radar has completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And then we see that Radar is behind a tree and we find out that he's, he's relieving himself. It's weird because like, what did, what did Radar do? Walk five feet in front of Frank and just disappear into the woods or something? Like, I know he's in camouflage, but it, to me, the editing is weird that it's those two shots are right together that they didn't pan back over to Hawkeye and BJ and then come back to this. I don't know. It just feels like a weird edit that somehow radar disappeared right in front of Frank's eye. It is. And looking at that, it, it looked to me like a sequence that didn't quite fit together. And they may have left some stuff out just to try and put it together in the best right. way possible. It's, it's a completely odd sequence because Frank is also waving this gun all around, pointing it in the direction he's asking, you know, O'Reilly, where are you? But in the in the motion of doing that, he's waving the gun in his direction. I mean, it's Frank being completely irresponsible with his gun again. 
Yeah, yeah, um, he's yeah. It's a, it's an odd moment, and I never have figured out. I don't know if they shot any of this, but we see nothing of Hawkeye and BJ's trek out to cr- try and find anything. We just get this brief sequence with Frank and Radar in the forest, um, and it is a little bit odd in the way it's put together. Yeah, we don't see Potter either. It's all just given right. to, to to Radar and and Frank. So then they all uh, meet back up at the jeep, and there's this great inter- exchange where Potter is back first. And then Hawkeye and BJ shows up, show up, and they talk about the. We saw a little little girl with a little red riding hood, and they do this little bit back and forth. And they go, it goes on for like a good extra, you know, like half <laughs> ten seconds. And then Potter finally says, uh, uh, "You guys, you know, basically, are you are you two done?" And I love that Hawkeye looks at BJ and he goes, "Are you?" And BJ just kind of nods his head, and then Hawkeye's like, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> like I like that. Yeah. Potter kind of lets them finish their bit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> their their comedy team is coming together. We're starting yeah. to see them really work well. Good rhythm on that. On yeah. that beat. <laughs> I love that. I love that about Colonel Potter that he gives them the rope a little. To, <laughs> okay, guys, yeah. you need to get this out. He's all right. You done? Yeah. Okay. Well, we can move on. So then Potter decides, okay, we're going to go back because we, we don't know where we're, says, we don't know where we're going. We know, we do know where we've been. So they decide to get back. And, uh, before they get on to the, um, back onto the bus, Frank demand, well, demands, he asks Hawkeye to not make any jokes during this time because everything is so serious. They shake hands. Hawkeye regards that uh, Burns's uh, handshake is uh, limp and wet. So that's always a good thing. And then uh, then we get a visual gag, uh, which probably to most people past a certain point have mm-hmm. no idea what it means, where mm-hmm. you've got BJ with his top of his head and his hands leaning out the bus window, and he's kind of like making a big show of it. And Hawkeye sees it, and he writes the word Kilroy in the dust on the window. And for a lot of people, again, they, Kilroy was here is something that's probably completely lost to time. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, I'll explain briefly what it is. It was a phenomenon which began during World War II and continued through the Korean War. It was common for soldiers who were the first at a location to write the phrase or the corresponding doodle of Kilroy as a cartoon face with a long nose hanging over a wall as BJ is imitated. And claim that Kilroy had already been there. It further became a challenge to be the first to write it with soldiers even going so far as to write it in general's latrines and other difficult-to-access locations. So, yeah, that's just, I, I'm old enough to remember Kilroy was here jokes. I think Bugs Bunny used to do Kilroy mm. jokes and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have anything related to the war. But, uh, but, but, man, I have to imagine to a certain uh, people of a certain age, it's just completely bewildering reference. I think that's true, although... On the new World War II memorial on the mall in Washington, D.C., I think Kilroy is written in two places, and they encourage oh. visitors there to try and find them. So oh, it's that's a nice marvelous. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's great. That's, it's oh, a, geez. It's a fascinating thing to try and figure out the origin of this piece, too, because it's not exactly clear how it even got started. Right. Um, James Kilroy was a rivet inspector, apparently, who would chalk Kilroy, his last name, on areas of a ship or a plane that he'd inspected. Apparently, some of those marks may have been seen by soldiers when new planes or ships arrive. It was seen as a mark of American engineering and power, and I guess soldiers then just started writing it uh, in places. It was a great morale boost. Because if soldiers showed up to an area and saw it written somewhere, they knew that Americans had been there before. And that was, I guess, a big morale boost to soldiers who were worrying, worrying about, you know, the safety of areas that they entered. It's a fascinating history. And, yeah, it's just a little throwaway gag uh, here. Yeah. It's, you know, BJ is mimicking the character himself with his nose and his fingers hanging over. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting piece that's not known as well as it once was. Yeah, and before we move off this, I do have to tell, uh, I just do have to mention my personal history with Kilroy was that a bunch of years ago, back when I was doing a a web comic, a web newspaper strip with my partner and artist, Dan O'Connor, the name of the strip was Ace Kilroy. And it was based, I got Kilroy from Kilroy Was Here. Because I was, I was at the time when I was trying to conjure names, I was trying to think of names that brought up the idea of World War II. And Kilroy was one of those names, so that's mm. where that's where that strip his last name came from was uh, the Kilroy was here. So anyway, they get back on the bus, and then immediately Hawkeye goes back on his agreement not to tease Frank. He mentions that uh, when when Frank mentions that he had steak, 
he says, oh, you had steak? They serve those right after the autopsies. And, uh, <laughs> and Burns, I think that's funny. And then uh, Hawkeye and BJ go on this little rant about the war's over. We go home, have kids, and breed new draftees and send them back over. And Potter's like, uh, all right, let's finish this war first. And he gets off the bus. <laughs> and then we see that the bus is no longer working. Radar is trying to fix it. But, of course, he has no idea. Well, I don't know if he has no idea what he's doing. But, he, but it's whatever the problem is wrong with the bus. It's right. beyond his ability to fix. So everybody's just sitting around killing time. And that's when we get into the conversation you mentioned earlier, where Potter, where uh, Burns talks about uh, what, you know, what fine leadership, he kind of mocking Colonel Potter saying, this isn't great leadership because Potter has a reference about that. Uh, if the uh, bus was a horse, we could shoot it. And uh, he gets a laugh out of Hawkeye and Burns kind of, mutters under his breath and then bj has the comment about he says i spent with you uh i spent a week with you uh in command frank and he says uh, you lost me when you rigged the toilets to rise to to rise <laughs> to attention he's only says uh, you know only for inspection as if somehow that's uh, you know like a, a reasonable uh that makes it okay it yeah. makes it okay yeah <laughs> yeah this it's just an amazing mix of the seriousness and the absurd in this episode and and i mentioned before and it's it's worth just lingering on because this is, I think, such an important episode about Potter's leadership. Yeah. Because previously we've experienced Henry Blake's leadership. And I remember you all talking about Rainbow Bridge, a season three, uh, episode two. In that, you have Henry who says, well, you know, it's command decision time. And then uh, <laughs> eventually he says, you know, I think Hawkeye says, what are you going to do? And Henry says, golly, whatever you people decide is fine with me. <laughs> And then Frank says, you've made a disastrous decision. And Hawkeye has a great line where he says, well, what do you want? It's his first one. He'll get better. (laughs) (laughs) So we have this Henry Blake leadership or lack of leadership. Now we have this new colonel that we don't know that much about. Up to this point, we know he's ex-cavalry. He's a horseman. He's kind of a no-nonsense guy. He's not afraid to get on the phone and give the top brass a piece of his mind. But we don't know that much about him. This episode gives us a lot of his backstory and we get to see his real leadership. He stands as a, he makes quick decisions. Uh, Potter makes a lot of declarative statements. You know, he tells Radar to pull over mm-hmm. um, when Hawkeye says, I think we should go on. And Frank says, we should go back. That's when Potter makes an instant decision to go for the hundred yard scout. And then later he says, it's my decision to turn around, get some new directions and start again. So we see so much of Potter's leadership here. And then when BJ and and, uh, Frank have this little exchange talking about Frank's leadership, you know, Potter overhears and says, what are you you talking about? What are you flapping your gums about, Major? Yeah. And and Frank says, well, I don't think you really appreciate the seriousness of what's going on here. And that's when we get this remarkable moment where Potter says, you know, any moment we could be getting bamboo manicures right up to our knuckles. He does this great list. We've got Ugh. no food, no water, no communication. Night is falling. We may right, right. now be in enemy territory. I mean, he lays it out, you know, like a, like a machine gun is one after the next of, you know, and, and then he says, he mentions uh, enemy territory, an enemy that would think nothing of giving us bamboo manicures right up to our knuckles. And I love that radar chuckles. You know, just because he's nervous, and then he, he sort doesn't of, know what to say. Yeah. yeah, and then you could see it hit him on his face, and then he, then he mentions uh, he might give us might, they might give us boiling egg drop colonics. Oh my which goodness, is horrendous! <laughs> and then he says, "Is that sounds like the proper appreciation, Major?" And Burns is like, "Pretty much, sir." And then I love Potter goes, "Thank you." Like, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Burns. I appreciate that you are acknowledging that I have, I'm the commander, and I understand what what kind of a pickle we're in. Well, and it's such such a clear thing that, you know, Potter recognizes quickly that that Frank doesn't have respect for him or for his leadership. And so he's going to make it very clear who's in charge in this predicament that they're in. Um, It's amazing that he really just shows us exactly the kind of leader that he is. Now, it's worth noting, or maybe not, uh, that Mythbusters did an episode about the growth of bamboo and how much it could grow under your fingernails, the kind of uh, torture that was done. And they found out that, that in ballistic gelatin, you know, which is supposed to mimic human flesh, that a bamboo can penetrate up to several inches in just a few days. So it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing to make, to imagine. And so, and then to follow that up with boiling egg drop colonics, I think he has a very good grasp of the seriousness of their circumstance. (laughs) 
great. So uh, Burns tries to fix the bus. He uh, he sits there. First of all, he kicks the tires, leading to one of my favorite lines of Hawkeye, where he says, you're going to fix it or buy it, Frank, which I think is a great, <laughs> a great a thing. Great so then he tells Radar to turn it over. Radar turns it over. We see a spark fly. And there's a great little piece of stunt work. Uh, I would imagine MASH didn't hire a lot of – didn't have a lot of stunt people uh, on their payroll at any given point. I'm sure they had – you know, 20th Century Fox had stunt people uh, on staff that they need. But, I mean, MASH probably didn't use much stunt. But there's a pretty nice stunt where we see uh, this spark fly and then the camera – is way you know out in front of the bus and we see whoever it is obviously it's not larry linville but whoever is there in playing frank gets shocked and flies off the hood of the the, off the engine off the bumper and flies Mm -hmm. right towards the camera and he lands and then there's a great reverse shot we see burns laying there and everybody picks him up but it's a it's a really solid stunt because whoever does it really launches himself across the dirt and it, uh, it looks pretty good it does. It looks like a really serious shock that, that Frank received here. And then, you know, of course, he then he screams out, are you crazy? Yeah. Which which is so uh, I think in this episode, in addition to seeing a lot of Potter's leadership, I think we begin to see even more of how plausible it is that Frank is going to crack <laughs> multiple episodes down the road. I mean, he is just insane in this episode just absurd and so many of the things he does from as you mentioned licking his finger to somehow gauge the wind as if that would help uh <laughs> acting like it was somebody else's fault other than him that he got shocked under the under the engine uh, waving this gun as we mentioned and then this ridiculousness that we'll talk about with the walkie-talkie i mean it's easy to see at this point how this person is just going to crack up later yeah um, it's just absurd yeah. So yeah, Radar finds a walkie-talkie, and of course the problem is there's uh, the other one back at the camp is busted, uh, and Potter and of course Burns immediately grabs her, starts talking into it, and Potter's like, Major, you know the other one has to be on your frequency, and so it has to be turned on on our frequency, and it uh, and it's uh, it's on the and the one that we do have is on the Fritz and 20 miles from here. But Burns isn't listening. He does this thing where he figures it's going to help, but he says that uh, there's a jet flying over my head. And at the exact moment I say now, uh, the jet will be directly over me now. And, of course, Hawkeye and BJ find that hysterical because they're like, that jet was going a 1,000 miles an hour. Like, <laughs> like by the time you said now, the uh, pilot was in a ha- – the, the plane was in a hangar and the pilot was in his jammies, which is – and Burns feels, Burns feels bad. And I do – again, I have, I have some, some weird sympathy for him. Because he feels unappreciated, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's, at the same time, he's not remotely contributing. He's not listening to his commander, uh, who's telling him, just give it up with the, the walkie-talkie, it's not going to work. Yeah, it's a weird sort of affect that he has. Is, is he not listening? Does he not believe them? Does he think he knows he knows better? The whole thing with the walkie-talkie is so absurd. And again, it just seems like this is somebody who doesn't have a full grasp of reality. Yeah. And and that's just going to come to full fruition a few episodes later. Yeah, he's just not paying any attention to what they're telling him, and what he's doing is so ridiculous, and everyone knows it but him. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, they try and start the bus again. It doesn't work, and then we have this really uncomfortable moment with Hawkeye and BJ and Potter, where uh, Potter says, uh, "You know, we've been in worse spots," and he's like, "The Argonne Forest, lost and hungry then too." Uh, he says, I couldn't find my outfit. And he says, after three days, I was ready to eat my socks and uh, nothing to do but wait. And they're like, well, everything turned out all right. And Potter's like, right. I was taken prisoner. They shaved my head and beat me to a pulp. <laughs> and oh. then there's, there's this great pause where Potter sort of realizes what he just said. And Hawkeye and BJ realize what he just said. And they all start looking in different directions. It's a, it's the act break of the episode and it's Marvel. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not the act break, but it's, it's the, the end of the scene. And it's, it's just fantastic because all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, Potter has all these colorful stories, but even he's like kind of remembering, oh, that, that wasn't good at all. Yeah. I mean, even Potter's reaction at the end of the story, you can see him sort of thinking back to it. And the look on his face is, is, is not a pleasant look. Um, and Gene Reynolds in that moment, to his credit, zooms in on Potter as he's talking about being taken prisoner and having his head shaved and beaten to a pulp. This is kind of a chilling moment. Um, when I watched it just recently, I thought this, there aren't many chilling moments in MASH. There are a lot of 
tense moments, nervous moments. There's an unexploded bomb in season one of the Army-Navy game. But this is legitimately a chilling moment when he tells this story, the unfolding of Sherman Potter, to hear him talk about being a prisoner of war and being beaten to a pulp. This is our, this is our lovable Sherman Potter. <laughs> and, and to think about this man having that experience, uh, it's intense, it's chilling. And, and BJ and Hawkeye look at each other right away as if to say, this is serious. Yeah, this is yeah. more than spooky. BJ had said, you know, this is feeling a little bit more than spooky. Yeah, it's more than spooky when you hear of Potter speaking about being a prisoner of war. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really great moment. And so then night is we night has fallen and everybody's on the bus. Uh, Frank is sneaking bites of his Hershey chocolate bar that he's got. And then there comes this really nice moment. And it's not a nice moment in that it's nice. Uh, it's a, it, well, I'll explain what I mean by that. It's a good moment where uh, Radar thinks he hears something and then he realizes, no, I didn't hear anything. And BJ just sort of offhandedly says, Radar's radar is jammed. And then Hawkeye very carelessly says, if it wasn't, would we be here? And of course, that's deeply offensive to Radar. And it's a dumb thing for Hawkeye to say. And you could see it on Alan Alda's face. The minute it comes out of Hawkeye's mouth, he regrets it. But it's too late. We know that he's hurt Hawk, He's hurt Radar's feelings. Potter even reaches out and sort of touches him on the hand. And he says, it's nobody's fault. And Radar just kind of mutters, I know. But I liked that they did that occasionally, that once in a while, you know, Hawkeye could be a real jerk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's our hero. He's our main character. But once in a while, he, you know, he's not, I mean, we know he's not a perfect person. He drinks too much and he philanders or, you know, he, he He's not necessarily the most respectful of women or whatever, but I, you know, picking on radar is like kicking a puppy. And, and I liked that they would occasionally throw that in that Hawkeye could be. And we know of course that radar worships Hawkeye and we'll get to that. There's a whole episode about that later on that, that for Hawkeye to say something critical of radar is to radar devastating. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that. Of course, you know, they're all tense. They're all scared. They're worried about their lives, and Hawkeye said something really stupid, and I like mm-hmm. that they allow for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, Hawkeye's affect through the first part of the episode is really interesting, too. Now, it may be informed by his being hung over, but he's very casual. His whole af- affect is very casual, and so he sort of complains about the bumpy bus, and then he doesn't seem particularly worried about their situation. He goes out and does his his hundred yard surge, he comes back with his coat slung over his shoulder. He's very casual and relaxed about it. But there's a certain point in the middle of the episode where he seems to get it, that they're in a serious situation. And this is dangerous. Uh, he says that line to Radar. He tries to take it back. And then later he says, hey, you know, we'll be okay. His casualness is sort of starting to drop away. And he's realizing this is difficult. This is a serious situation. And they're all scared. Yeah. I like that a lot. I really do. Again, I, I called it a nice moment. It's not nice to watch Hawkeye be mean to Radar, but it's a good character beat. And uh, I like that John D. Hess or whoever it was that uh, put it in, uh, throw it in. So Radar right. uh, Radar decides to go to the bathroom, and then that's when they have this conversation about the first time. Uh, they all decide to talk. They're, they're losing their virginity stories. Potter tells this marvelous story, and I will get to that later on in the episode because um, it's my favorite uh, line in the episode. But then we get Frank's story. Uh, well, it, and it's funny because they're, they're trying to bond a little bit by each telling each other about how they lost their virginity. And, of course, they, they rope Frank in, and Frank initially tries to be one of the gang, but he doesn't even tell the right story because he tells a story about how there's this woman, Helen Rappaport, smart as a whip, as he likes to say, <laughs> um, wanted to... Uh, get with Frank, uh, but uh, he rejected that, and he said because uh, I don't believe in that sort of happiness until uh, until we get married. And so it's it's he's not even telling the right story. I mean, it's like the whole point of the story is to tell when you lost your virginity, not when you almost lost your virginity. So it's we even even when Frank's trying to be a regular guy, he's not good at it. No, even when they try to include him, he's always yeah. on the outside, no matter what. <laughs> So, uh, um, it's a it's a real shame that this scene ends before we get to hear Hawkeye or BJ's story. I would have loved to have heard about the story, <laughs> sure, yeah. but we never get to them because uh, BJ says, uh, "Okay, Hawk, you're next," and then that's the moment 
where Hawkeye realizes that they haven't heard from Radar in a little bit, and they decide right. to go wander off. And that's that's the uh, the end of the act break where he's like Radar, and then realize that Radar has been gone a little too long. By the way, in this, um, there is a reference here uh, to Father Coglin. Where Frank Burns talks about, uh, you know, they were having a debate club back in school, and he says, "Should should Father Coglin be our next president?" So, for those of people, much like Kilroy, Father Coglin is a reference lost in the ages. Father Coglin was a, his name is Charles Edward Coglin. He's commonly known as Father Coglin. He was a Canadian American Roman Catholic priest who was based in the United States near Detroit. Uh, initially, Coglin was a vocal supporter of Franklin. Delano Roosevelt in the New Deal, and then later became a very harsh critic of Roosevelt, accusing him of being too friendly to bankers. He eventually established a political organization. So he was kind of an early religious slash political leader, and mm-hmm. he had some so, some notions of political office. And so that is he never went any never went anywhere. But uh, but for he was a a figure of 19, America in the 1930s and 40s. So that is something that. Uh, Burns and his schoolmates would have been debating at the time as Father Coglin. And I've mentioned in previous episodes, you know, I, there were lots of references in MASH that I just went right over my head. Because right. I didn't know whether, when I was like seven years old, when I saw this episode for the first time, or eight or nine, I had no idea who Father Coglin was. But, you know, over time, I've learned who it is. He's like, okay, deep into the show a little bit. It's a nice reference. It's like, okay, yeah, that is something that probably would have been debated at the time when Burns was like in college or in high year or very late high school or things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, so as I mentioned, they said, then uh, Hawkeye realizes that uh, radar has been gone. We come back from the act break. Hawkeye wants to go searching with BJ and uh, Potter says, absolutely not. It's I love, he's got one good reason and one bad reason. He says, first of all, it's not smart. Second of all, you're not leaving me here with Burns, which is great. (laughs) Right. He says that he's more boring. He's more boring asleep than awake. Which, well, who isn't? I guess. Uh, <laughs> so then they get some noise, and uh, they hear some noise. I love that Burns wakes pulls the wakes up with his gun in his hand. I like. I love that Potter's like at ease, Burns. <laughs> right. For God's sake, what are you doing? Yeah, and Potter also says to Hawkeye, "Unacceptable procedure. I won't have it." Yep. Again, very decisive leadership from Potter. We're learning even more about him. But Hawkeye's really on edge here too. Yep. Yeah, because uh, we have Burns say, "Did he? Did he come back yet?" And uh, Hawkeye says, "No." And and Frank says, "No, huh?" And Hawkeye sort of mocks him, "Yeah, huh? That's right, huh?" And then Burns says, "Well, what are you getting mad at me? I liked Radar too." And that really sets Hawkeye off because he talks about, you mentioned Radar in the past tense one more time, and I'll teach you how to be a tail gunner. And he said, obviously, Hawkeye is feeling very guilty about that. Maybe he drove Hawkeye, he drove Radar off the bus uh, in a moment of of shame. And so he would not be able to live with himself if something happened to Radar. So I I love, and you can see it in Alan Alda's face. He's always, he's got this, his brow was sort of furred, so he's looking irritated. Again, I'd like the ratcheting up of the tension is that it okay, does. we're at night yeah. now. And now, now radar might be missing. This is getting worse. This is a bad situation. It's getting worse. I think that's again, why you can't have a laugh track in this episode. Yeah. Cause you're trying to ratchet up that tension and any intrusion of a laugh track would hurt that process. And we really do see Hawkeye getting on edge here. I mean, he is very upset and that casual affect that, hungover sort of we're going to be fine i'm not that worried about it affect is completely gone at this point he is very worried and very angry at frank uh, the absurdity of frank's behavior has gotten on him as well and i think you're right i think he feels very guilty about having said that line to radar and perhaps prompting him to leave the bus in the first place yeah yeah it's it's really it's a great it's a great piece so then they hear this noise and we realize that it is not radar it is in fact a lost north korean soldier who is giving up? And uh, North, the, the North Korean soldier is played by Soon Tech O, who would mm. end up being on MASH dozens, not dozens, but at least something around a dozen episodes. This is not his first appearance. He was in the season three episode, Love and Marriage. He always played a different character. He never mm-hmm. played the same character more than once. Yep. Uh, but he's giving up, and he doesn't speak any English. He's wounded. They, they, uh, they bandage him up and bring him in. Of course, Burns is acting like a lunatic. There's this, there's this great gag where... They're bandaging him up, and then they pan over, and Burns has got 
what looks like a, a machine gun. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where that came from, where they, but he's got a machine gun. And I love that Potter just so, so calmly is like, Burns, yes, sir. And he's like, didn't I see your picture at the post office? Which is <laughs> exactly Because like he does look like he's Al Capone or something. We and he talks he like that later. I mean, Frank talks like a gangster, you know, to the, to the surrendered soldier. And then it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, I love Soon Teko. Uh, he has this gentle face. And this wonderful, kind smile. He's Ralphie in the Yellow Brick Road, which is such a great episode. And he's just this sweet-looking person. And I, I think it's a wonderful piece of casting that he doesn't have, you know, a, a face like Mako, for instance, who looks right. very ominous sometimes. Right, a little threatening, yeah. Yeah, this he looks this in this the soldier that surrenders. He looks like just a gentle, kind person, and that, which makes Frank's threatening of him so much more absurd. I mean, Frank is holding. I think this is a, a submachine gun, and I where did that come from? Why would they even have that on the bus? Yeah, and I read somewhere that someone said it was a continuity goof that this was a, a machine gun developed in Nazi Germany during World War II. Probably not a continuity goof. Sur- surplus World War II weapons were often found in other countries after the war. But it's, again, a pretty formidable weapon that he's waving around inside this small space. Yeah, and uh, I love that Burns sort of handles it. Uh, excuse me, Potter handles it very calmly. Where he doesn't yell at it, he's like, he just says, Burns. They <laughs> just very yeah. quiet burns. Um, so then uh, they decide, okay, who's going to watch over the prisoner while everybody sleeps? They all volunteer Frank, which is great. There's a great unison of he will, he will, I will. You know, they all do it all at the same time. Right. And then we're then we are uh, introduced to this, as I said in the synopsis, deranged rant from Burns because as we established that uh, the North Korean soldier doesn't speak English, so he has no idea. What Burns is saying, although Burns doesn't necessarily believe it, but he does. As you mentioned, he starts talking. He talks like he's he's walked out of a 1930s Warner Brothers gangster picture. Exactly. Like you're gonna you're gonna get the big zoom. You know, you understand what Mr. He calls it Mr. Moto, which is the Mr. Moto reference. I mean, that's a Japanese fictional secret agent. I guess he Mr. Moto was in six novels in the 30s to the 50s. Yeah, he's not even a Korean. Now, I mean, then it's, you get the picture, right, amigo? Like he's, yeah. I mean, it's you real. This is a, one of our chances to get unvarnished burns where no one else is around. And then, of course, the button on the scene is after he, uh, and then he, he grabs the walkie talkie and he starts talking to no one. Mm-hmm. And he, and he says something like, uh, I have begun to take prisoners. And he's like, unless I receive instructions, I will be forced to shoot sane. Yeah. And it's like he's come up with this self justification. Now, we know Burns is a chicken, but I, I have a hard time believing he would actually shoot somebody. I just think he's just not brave enough for that. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's chilly because it he's is, really it's, deluded. He's it's a little than- odd even that they would nominate him to be the one to hold the weapon and guard the soldier. Yeah. I mean, he's so unhinged and so absurd in this episode. There's something a little foolish about saying, yeah, let's leave him to brandish the weapon and be on guard. He's not trustworthy. No, I mean, they're not taking him seriously, I guess. But, I mean, you know, even I wouldn't – anyone holding a submachine gun would – you know, <laughs> it's frightening. So uh, then Radar, we find Radar, and he's covered in dirt. We see that he's been out. He sneaks back on the bus. He, of course, doesn't know anything that's going on about the North Korean soldier. He thinks it's Colonel Potter, and then he realizes that it's North Korean. He gets scared. He wakes Burns up. He sees that Burns has this cache of Hershey bars. Uh, which he should not be having, or, or, or at the very least, he should have been sharing with the group. Uh, and he says, uh, I didn't mean to spill your chocolate. He says, that's not chocolate. And I love Raiders goes, right, yeah. it's not chocolate. He just gets, right. goes along with it. Uh, everybody gets woken up, and then they're all happy Radar gets back. Even even the North Korean soldier is happy to see Radar, and Radar is terrified <laughs> of that. And then there's this really sweet little moment where uh, they all, they say, oh, come up to the front, you know, basically to the front of the bus, and you hear Potter say, you're going to explain uh, why you played hooky, son. And BJ takes over, guarding the prisoner, and Frank offers him the submachine gun, and BJ just waves it off. Waves it off, yeah. yeah. And then we see the North Korean soldier look at BJ, and BJ just gives him a friendly little, hi, it's okay. And he just yeah. kind of like, don't worry about it. I, you know, you're, you're fine now. And then the there's the nice moment where the guy Goes, he has soon Teco does this great huh, and he just goes you know goes to sleep very peacefully 
Yeah, well, who wouldn't be more relaxed if if BJ smiles at you and does the finger wave? I mean, it yeah. just it just brings a calmness. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice it's a nice moment. So then, next morning, uh, Potter and Radar are talking. There's a nice, a nice bit of characterization where Potter puts his arm around Radar and mm-hmm. they start talking. And then Radar returns the gesture, and then we see he realizes what he's done, and he feels a little uncomfortable. Right, he pulls his hand off of Potter, and and uh, I like that moment. It's that. Potter can extend that courtesy, but it's probably not completely appropriate for good for it to go the other way. Yeah, uh, at, and at this point in their relationship, it's a, it's another great example of their relationship developing. And again, we're still getting to know Potter. So is Radar. He's trying to figure out exactly how are they allowed to relate to each other, and and this is a wonderful moment. Yeah, where Potter puts his arm around him, and Radar's not quite sure if he can do the same yet. They're still figuring out their relationship, but it's. But it's a growing relationship, and you can see the fondness between them really taking off. Yeah. So then uh, we see that the uh, North Korean prisoner is actually fixing the bus. Frank flips out, leading to one of my favorite lines of the episode where he says, it's sabotage. And he starts manhandling the, the, the North Korean. And, and then he's like uh, – and you know, BJ is like, what are you doing? And, and uh, Byrne says, that's how we lost China. And Bert, BJ goes, by fixing a bus? <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I love that he <laughs> Burns has the uh, the screwdriver and he BJ like pushes it out of the way and he says, "Careful, that thing could be loaded." <laughs> yeah, right. After they've seen it explode the engine before, <laughs> and then Potter finally gets upset and he's like, "All right, we're going to go back, forget it." And then we see that the bus has been fixed. The North Korean soldier has fixed the bus, uh, which is wonderful. I, Potter says, "We were mighty, we're mighty grateful, old man." Old man, which yeah. is interesting. I mean, he's not saying that literally. Obviously, he's not referring yeah. to him as old man. I guess it's just kind of a colloquialism calling him an yeah. old man. I don't think it's a phrase Potter uses for the rest of the series. But and so no, no. we're still figuring him out. So are the writers. So so then, as they decide to go home, they realize uh, they get the idea. Well, we should store food on this bus in case this ever happens again. And that's Radar's moment to turn the screws a little. Where he says, "You're right." I says. Uh, because, uh, you know, if, if you get really hungry, you could fall asleep and uh, when you're on guard duty. Right, Major? And and uh, Frank sees through that. Frank understands that he's about to be outed. So then he pretends, oh, look, I have like 10 chocolate bars in my bag. And he hands them all. And I like, again, another mm. detail. I like that when he offers the bars to Potter, Potter takes two and he gives one to the prisoner, mm-hmm. which Frank was never intending to do. Right. Well, and the look on Hawkeye and BJ's face when they realize that he has the chocolate, they are barely hanging on to their total disgust of yeah, Frank. Yeah. I mean, the look on their faces is they're, they are really trying to just keep from strangling him. I mean, that kind of behavior in the situation they were in is so awful. Um, you can just see it on their faces that they are holding back. Uh, and now in the episode that I always saw uh, pre in the DVDs, um, this is where the episode ends. Uh, that's the end of the episode, and then it cuts to credits. But in the, the the full episode features a whole extra button scene where they're they're on their way home, and they they're pulling a prank on Frank, where they have handed the other walkie-talkie, which has suddenly appeared. Right. By the way, because they just no mentioned one, that there was no one on bothered the bus. to look around the bus for all yeah. the things that were on there. Yeah, I guess it was hidden under a seat somewhere. But they've handed the second walkie-talkie to the North Korean soldier, who of course is talking in Korean, which Frank assumes is you know uh, he's he's made contact with the enemy. And uh, Frank is so stupid he can't even sense that there's somebody talking about yeah. what four feet behind him on the bus. <laughs> I, I know, mean, I know. Yeah, the bus is really noisy. I guess. I guess so. Yeah. And he says, "Put that. No one's uh, no one's beaten Uncle Sam, and they never will. So put that in your opium pipe and smoke it." And Potter just says, "That's telling him, Major." And he yeah, just kind of exactly. rolls his eyes, and that's it. And then the, the last shot is just a faraway shot of uh, the bus on its way back to the four seven seventh, and uh, yeah. that's yeah. the episode. I mean, it's a really wonderful show. Very funny. Uh, again, very format busting and. It had never occurred to me, really, how much of a Potter episode this is, about how much we learn about him in this episode. But I think you're absolutely right, Rob. We we really get some great insights into this character because, as you talked about comparing him to Henry, Henry really didn't show a lot of leadership. But here, when the chips are down, Potter takes charge, as he should. He does, yeah. And we didn't talk about it yet, but we wanted to go back to it. There's a whole sequence that's cut out in syndication where Potter's speaking again about some of his World War I experience and meeting this 
um, young nurse and he is wounded and he's blind for a month. And I think this might be one of the worst cuts from syndication of any of the scenes that we've lost in MASH. Um, this moment where he talks about being in the battle of Chateau Theory is so poignant and it has, a, and maybe we have the same favorite line. It has this remarkable line from Potter. It's so tender. Now we've seen him be hard and forceful and a leader and here this moment where he tells this story about Colette is so poignant and sweet and so well written. Um, the way he talks about how he couldn't see and he was, you know, severely wounded and all he had, um, just to, all the only contact he had was with this nurse named Colette. And he says her name three times in the sequence. And it is so tender and again tells us so much about what this man has been through. We've already learned that he's been a prisoner of war. He's been beaten. And here he's wounded and blind for up to a month. And when the bandages came off, you know, he says, all I could see was Colette's face. And he has this wonderful line where he says, darkness I lived in was relieved only by the sound of her voice and the touch of her hand. It is such a great scene, well-written. And again, I just hear from John Hess, the voice of someone who's been in combat, who maybe knew what it was like to be wounded, certainly knew people who are seriously wounded. Uh, it's such a wonderful scene and so well-played. Uh, by Potter, so well-written and so well-performed. Yeah, it's very poetic. Uh, you're not expecting Colonel Potter to be as sort of poetic as that. But uh, but yeah, actually, that leads perfectly into what I was going to ask you about, what your favorite line was from this episode, and that was mine, uh, yeah. is that sequence. is Because, yeah, he does tell the story. I always assumed it was a slight variation on apparently something like that happened to Ernest Hemingway. In, in World War One, uh, that he was wounded and, and had a romance with a nurse. I think I think that's from from real life. Um, mm -hmm. But but yeah, the way that Harry Morgan talks about this French nurse named Colette, and the way that he lets his voice trail off when mm -hmm. he says it, he he says it the first time, he says it a second time, and then he just the third one, he just goes, he's like Colette, Colette, and he just his voice drops, and you really feel that. In the, in that moment, Colonel Potter is lost in his reverie. Yeah, that he's oh, yeah. not he's not actually in the bus at the moment, telling these guys this this sort of uh, you know purposely saucy story about losing his virginity. He's remembering. He's flashing back to this moment, and and it's something that I have said uh, repeatedly over on when I had my Mash blog was that I always thought that uh, no joke, there really could have been a young Sherman Potter adventures spinoff mm. show. That mm -hmm. would have been an interesting show, an hour long sure. dramatic show of young Sherman Potter at war uh, across, you know, growing up and, 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 you know, becoming a doctor, becoming a surgeon while at war. And this, these are the kind of, this is the kind of stuff. This is yeah. the stuff I want to see. And so, yeah, that is my, even though it's, it's not a funny line and there are a lot of funny lines in the episode, in this episode, that's my favorite line of just the way Harry Morgan perfectly delivers the, the name, the Colette, just the, the, the name itself has this sort of uh, it's like totemistic feel to it that uh, you almost wonder, it's like, geez, does even Mildred know about Colette? We don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, just the way he says it, it's, it's a great speech by John D. Hess and brilliantly performed by Harry Morgan. So yeah, that's my favorite line. So again, yeah, we, you and I both picked the same sort of favorite moment from this episode. Uh. It's such a great sequence, and, and again, such a crime that it was cut out of syndication. Yep. I had never yep. seen that scene yep. until a couple of years ago. Yep. It's, yeah, it's, you have to wonder, these syndicators, what they, <laughs> what they were thinking sometimes about what to cut and what not to cut. You know, it seems yeah. I mean, they, they, leave, you know, they leave the joke of Radar going to the bathroom. That stays in. But this great speech by Harry Morgan, no, we're going to lop that out. Like that's, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, if you leave the Colette sequence in, what would you cut out? And that's one of the first things I'd cut out, yeah. is that whole sequence with uh, Frank and Radar in the forest. It doesn't yeah. add much. No, no. Yeah, so, I don't understand it at all. Yeah. But so, yeah, the bus, it's just a great episode. It's it's one of the things that I think uh, I, I keep saying, I'm going to say every episode this season I think season four is the best season of television ever because it, it they found a way to expand the format, bust the format, but also deliver. I mean, they, they swung for the fences, but they, they hit the ball uh, in that this is a, a, a reverse bottle show, but really effective. And we great. We get to see the doctors 
in a high pressure situation, in a different kind of high pressure situation. Not they're not worried about someone else's life; they're worried about their own life. Yeah. Uh, it's a great detail, and uh, I think it's just a great show. And uh, said it to me, it's one of the highlights of the season, and that is saying something. Yeah, I mean, all of season four, I mean, I, I I always love origin stories. I love finding out where this character came from, who they are, what their backstory is. And in season four, we get that with two of our main characters. We don't know that much about them. Uh, it's all unfolding. I, I feel disappointed that I didn't get to watch these for the first time in sequence. Mm. Because, of course, watching these episodes where we learn more about Potter and BJ, well, I already know so much about them. Then I, you know, see this episode, it doesn't, it doesn't have the impact it would be if you were watching it for the first time in order. Uh, but it really does offer a lot. This is an unusual little episode, but it gives us some really, really important character development. Yeah, it's it's a really, truly great show. So, well, uh, Rob, I mean, thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. This is this was just a fantastic conversation. And as I said, I promise uh, we'll have you back to talk about uh, a Father Mulcahy episode. Oh, it's no problem. I'm more than happy to talk about this episode. I enjoyed it a lot. And yes, we, I'd be happy to talk about Father Mulcahy in the future. Um, before we go, can I give some kudos to Stanford Tischler, the editor, you know, Absolutely, I mentioned, sure. mentioned briefly before that uh, I spent 15 years in film and television before going into into ministry, and most of my time was in editing and in post production for uh, a number of different companies and projects. And so my heart is always with the editors, <laughs> and and Stanford Tischler was a part of all 11 seasons uh, as an editor, as a supervising editor. Uh, and he was doing editing on on film on flatbeds with trim bins. If anyone out there knows what it's like to be editing film uh, on a flatbed, hanging your trims, losing them in the bottom of the bin, it's quite a process. It's a lot more difficult than our editing we can do today on our computers. Uh, you got to shoot it, you got to develop it, you got to get work prints, you got to make them coded, you got to get a negative editor. I mean, it's quite a process to edit that we don't do anymore. And Stanford was there for all of them, 11 seasons. He was also an associate producer for multiple episodes. He was a producer on only one episode, season nine, episode 11, No Sweat. Hmm. Uh, and that must have caused him a lot of sweat because he opted not to be a producer of other episodes. Um, <laughs> He's like, I have to go back to editing. A, yeah, he was also an editor on Walter and After MASH. He was an editor on Leave it to Beaver, which I also watched after school when I came home. A courtship of Eddie's Father, Sea Hunt, Night Gallery, Nanny and the Professor, nominated for nine Emmys. He won one. He's born on Christmas Day and died at age 92. And at the end of his L.A. Times obituary, they included these three words, goodbye, farewell, and amen. Oh. So Stanford Tischler, <laughs> what a winner uh, and what an editor and so dedicated to the MASH franchise. I just wanted to give him some kudos tonight. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that uh, I'm so sorry about that, the you know, as time marches on, is that so many of the people behind the scenes of MASH in these early years are no longer with us. Uh, I, I, you know, as much as I would love to, I mean, you know, we know I talked to Loretta Swit a couple of years ago, as much as I would love to talk to any of the, the actors on the show, I would love just as much to talk to the behind the scenes people because I'd be fascinated. But what was it like to costume MASH? You know, everybody's wearing the same outfits every week. What is it like to edit the same show for 11 years? I mean, to keep your creative sort of um, your, your keep, keep your creative blade sharp, you know, when you're doing the same show after 11 right. years. I mean, you obviously he must have found some way to, to keep himself entertained and, and involved in this. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, thank you so much for, for taking the time out to, to highlight his work, because, yeah, I mean, in ed editing, as Stanley Kubrick said, like, editing is the thing that makes movies unique is editing every every other every other element of the movies comes from some other art form photography music theater but editing is unique to film right, right. and so yeah stanford tischler it's, it's a name that you would see in the end credits every week for 11 years yeah. and uh you know yeah it's i said i would have i would have loved to have talked to him he sounds like a Probably a very interesting guy. And, yeah, I would have loved to know why he just produced that one episode. Maybe it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, just, I'll go back to my editing bay. That's fine, guys. That's okay. So, anyway, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed talking to you. You too. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, keep up the good work on the show. It's great.
Thank you. So, of course, everybody, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, go to Mash477Cast. All our episodes are on the website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So a big salute to Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Stan Peel, Dolph DeVries, Britt Tram, and Mike Thomas for their support of MASHCast. Thanks, everybody. So uh, that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back. And until then, that is all. guys, huh? I think it's agreed we all like him. Except whoever wrote me anonymously that Radar was selling tickets to the hole in the nurse's shower. Well, it wasn't me. Why would I think it was you? Because I know people think that that's just the kind of thing I might do. Well, why did you do it? Because I felt it was my duty. I thought you said you didn't do it. I thought I did, too. <laughs>